Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 434 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we have a wide-ranging conversation with Steve Carter. Steve was the teaching pastor at Willow Creek Community Church until 2018. We are going to talk about what happened and his perspective on it, and uh, I'll have some things to say at the end of this podcast. Just a warning, there's some sensitive matters, uh, and uh, uh, if you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. We'll get into it in a minute, but we're going to go beyond that as well. What the crisis taught him as a millennial leader why character matters so much, and what Steve's up to now as a leader as well. This episode is brought to you by World Vision. Um, You can sign up for their free web series, Right Side Up Soul Care, with one of my heroes, Danielle Strickland, over at worldvision.org forward slash carry. And by CDF Capital, you can learn about their XP Summit cohorts and sign up today by going to cdf.capital slash cohorts. So uh, Steve and I are going to talk about, uh, well, what happened at Willow Creek a few years ago. And if you've been following that story, it was in all the national press. Uh, Very sadly, very um, tragically on every front, uh, it was revealed that Bill Hybels had uh, a series of unwanted and completely inappropriate interactions, relationships, and even dynamics in his relationship with a number of female employees and people at Willow Creek. It was heartbreaking and devastating for all involved, for the women, obviously, but also for the whole church and everyone who put their trust in a church leader. And Steve and I talk about that. Uh, Steve was actually named as one of Bill's successors. He was going to take on the teaching role. And then, of course, the news of what had been going on broke. Uh, It surprised Steve. He did not know. Most people did not know. And uh, we kind of journey through that uh, because, you know, we can't do an exhaustive treatment of what happened. That's not the purpose of this podcast. But Steve is going to bring his perspective. And one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is uh, I've talked to so many leaders who have ended up in a similar situation. Now, not making national headlines like that, uh, but perhaps you're a younger leader, and Steve was 38 at the time who has had to deal with indiscretions or inappropriate or abusive behavior by someone else, maybe your successor, maybe your boss. And Steve's perspective is really helpful, or perhaps, and if this is the case, I am so, so sorry, perhaps you've been a victim at the hands of someone who abused their power, abused their position. And if that's the case, I hope that this episode isn't triggering to you. Uh, I did share it with a number of people to kind of run it through a filter to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And I hope that's the case. And I just also want to say, I'm so, so sorry. That is not how leadership should operate. That is not how the church should operate. I have some thoughts at the end of this episode in the What I'm Thinking About segment where I will talk about, um, not specifically about Willow, but just why do these things keep happening and how can we stop it in our lives? So, Anyway, that's a bit of an extended introduction on this one. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about Steve. Steve is a pastor, speaker, author, podcast host, and former lead teaching pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. He hosts the Craft and Character podcast where he helps people get better at the art of communication. And 
at their character, obviously. His desire is to bring Jesus into every conversation. He also co-hosts one of the top sports podcasts, the Home Team Podcast, where NFL players Trey Burton and Sam Acho, did I pronounce that right? This is how much I know about sports, okay? Which unpacks the intersection between faith, culture, sports, and family. His latest book, which we get into, The Thing Beneath the Thing, is so good. If you want to finish strong, I would encourage you to pick up that book. And if you want to lead better, it's, it's a great book. Hey, today's episode is brought to you by World Vision. The deepest truths about living like Jesus, which is kind of the goal, come from leaders who are often suffering, persecuted, and living in a hostile environment. So World Vision has put together a series with Danielle Strickland. It's called Right Side Up Soul Care. It is about your soul, which is so important. It's free. And you can sign up today at worldvision.org slash carry. That's worldvision.org slash C-A-R-E-Y. And uh, if you're an executive pastor, I know we have a lot of executive pastors listening. CDF Capital is running some executive summit cohorts. And as a member of a cohort, if you join, you're going to grow personally and professionally. You'll engage in three in-person experiences with a world-class mentor to see his or her ministry firsthand. You'll connect in monthly coaching sessions with a ministry professional who knows you and can speak to your ministry with accuracy and insight and enjoy conversation and community with your peers across the country. Uh, Cohorts are really important. I've participated in different ones hosted by CDF. I highly recommend them. You can go to cdf.capital, that's C-A-P-I-T-A-L, slash cohorts. That's cdf.capital slash cohorts to sign up today. Well, with all that said, let's move into my conversation with Steve Carter, which went all over the place, including his final years at Willow, what he learned as a young leader, some time in the desert as he rethought his life and what his plans were going to be. And uh, yeah, reflect on so many things. I hope you find it helpful. Here we go. Steve, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Welcome. Thank you so much, Carrie. I I just absolutely love you and um, the stuff that you put out. I just I just got to tell you, um, you are an absolute gift to the kingdom. So it's an honor to be with you, my friend. Well, I appreciate it. I feel the same way about you. So I I, I want to start here. I think we probably should start here. So three years ago, you were positioned to be one of the successors, the key teaching pastor at Willow Creek, Chicago. Then everything changed as the allegations of long-term sexual abuse and harassment by the senior pastor, Bill Hybels, surfaced, uh, precipitating a crisis for everybody involved, uh, you know, and and for the victims and the, just the sadness that that created. So many things happened at once. What was it like to go through that as a leader? Yeah, I know that's like, it's such a simple question. It's so loaded, but like, yeah. man, you were there in the middle of it. Well, okay, so... This is fascinating because on on multiple levels, um, first off, you know, three years ago, you released a book uh, about a month after I resigned, and it was called "Didn't See It Coming," which yeah, you're right. <laughs> so so I I I am somewhere after I've left Willow, and I run into your agent, um, and Esther, Esther, yeah. and she's fantastic. She comes up to me and she goes, "Steve, I can't imagine what you're going through." Carrie's got a book coming out in two weeks. You've got to read it. And I'll just be honest, like that book and, and again, this season, God surprised me with a lot of different voices And mm. that book though, I think encapsulated a lot. Um, mm. 
the feeling of, I didn't see this coming. Yeah. Um, I did not. You didn't know. You weren't yeah, sitting on yeah, a scandal. Right. No. And so this was, this in so many ways, this was my dream job. I mm. mean, this, this, this was uh, the story of Dr. B pouring into to Bill and then Bill going to pour into me. And I, I had already, and I think any leader, you know, whether in the marketplace, whether, you know, as a pastor, you, you, you can have these moments where you get out ahead and you start playing it out. Well, someday I'm going to be able to, to be a Dr. B for somebody else. Or, and I had just bought in, I bought into the values. I, I fell in love with a congregation. Um, I loved Chicago. And then you don't see something coming that ends up being, um, an earthquake um, of, yeah. you know, I, I just culturally with, within the kingdom, um, the layers to all of it, you had women who were being so brave and honest mm. and human. You, you had um, just decision-making that was just wrong. Um, yeah. You had self-preservation. I mean, you're, you're an organization that's almost a third of a billion dollars in assets and self-preservation's kicking in. And and I'm in the middle of this trying to figure out number one, they don't they don't prepare you for this in seminary. Yeah. They, they they don't yeah. go, hey, when a big massive crisis comes and there's there's people on Twitter and there's this is what you do. So you're like learning, and I I am trying to make sense of what do I do? Like mm. there's no win. And I'm a three on the Enneagram. And I, I felt like any decision I make, I was going to hurt people, which mm. for me um, was forced a level of what are the most important values? What are the most important principles? And that's where, you know, words like character, which you, again, talk about and didn't see it coming. Um, yeah. Integrity, just start rising. And, and I think really going, what's the right thing? And what I saw with these women, as I started to hear their stories from them personally, I realized uh, we, we've got to make some decisions. So it was a mixture. Um, it was a bad cocktail of emotions, of sadness. Mm. Um, uh, just, yeah, just anger at moments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, feeling betrayed. Um, mm. Can't even, trying to put myself in the position of women who were coming forward and for them not to feel seen or heard or their allegations taken seriously, just all of that and having the responsibility to go, I have to represent Christ. And how do I mm. shepherd people through this as a pastor of a congregation I absolutely love? And you just get into this reality of, I've never been paid more. I've never mm. spoken to a larger room. I've never had more influence. I've never had more. All of my dream job and achiever dreams had been made. But if I'm just going to play church, if I'm going to play a role, um, if I'm going to go against the, these women's story, um, what am I doing? It's not what I set out to get into this calling for. It was to represent Christ well. And I just felt like, we weren't doing a good job. And it wasn't the willow that I knew. The willow mm. I knew was like one that actually would be able to do that and have the honest conversation. And that's that's what I had been hoping for. Um, but in some organizations um, at certain times, I think 
there were a lot of people were trying to make sense of, of this and self-preservation and organizational protection, I think, began to creep in um, almost and become more important than the mission. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like talking to you. And again, this is not a complete exegesis of what happened at Willow, and that's not the purpose. That is much beyond the purview of this conversation. But it was just tragic at every level. Every level. I felt for the women. And you know, you keep thinking, well, maybe this was one incident and it was, and then you realize, oh, this appears to be a serial pattern over many decades. And it's just, it was, it was sickening and just heartbreaking on, on every level for the women, for people who put their faith in a leader for, um, yeah, yeah. I I don't, I don't know. Words are still difficult to wrap around that. And you're in the middle of that. Yeah. And I think partly recognizing too is, you know, I didn't, I didn't do everything right. I mean, that's, I, Hmm. I I had to, I had to come back and actually recognize like, oh man, like there were parts of me that didn't want to believe there were parts of me that wanted to protect. There were parts of me that, you know, gosh, like I, and I think having to begin to be really honest and really human about, um, those, those parts in me. And I think what ends up happening is you start to find stuff out that have been kind of buried or kept you for, for many years or decades, you're, you're, and, and every leader knows this, but the violation of trust yeah. is one of the hardest, single most hardest things to restore and rebuild. And especially in the midst of a crisis, when you don't know who can I trust, mm. who's going to tell me the truth. And I think that piece, um, I think for everyone in the midst of it, you are you are having to wrestle with what is the truth, who can I trust, and what is the next best right step forward. That's a really interesting point. You, I hadn't thought about that, but I'm sure from the outside looking in, it's very easy to analyze and think you've you've got this figured out. But I'm sure when you're in the middle of that, you're like, wait, I've trusted the board, I've trusted Bill, I've trusted these people who's, yeah, that must've been deeply confusing. You, you hinted at something. You said, I didn't do everything right. You got a couple years distance now. Looking back on it, is there anything you wish you had done differently? Yeah, you know, I, I, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a handful, um, mm. you know, right from the jump of, I remember the Thursday night when the, the Tribune article dropped and, you know, the executive team, um, Heibel's family is just basically reading that article. And it was a long article. I mean, I think it was the longest article I'd ever read, like in a paper. And it's like almost 7,000 words. And I, the next day we ended up having a family meeting. And I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to My be My family meant church or? Uh, yeah, it was kind of like the church congregation meeting to talk oh, about the gotcha. allegations. And I wasn't supposed to be on that stage. And that day, um, that Friday, you know, a couple of people just came out to me and said, Hey, and Bill being one of them going, Hey, would you, would you, um, be on the stage? It would mean a lot to me. And part of it, I was like, I don't really know all these stories. Um, but I, I cared for him. I cared for our congregation and I had trust with the congregation. I should not have been on that stage. And I had a check in my spirit 
going, I don't think this is the wisest thing, but being on there, I wasn't aware enough of what that would communicate, one, to the women, and then two, mm. um, you know what it's like when you're on stage with multiple people, sometimes you will see the energy level being different. So you use humor or you try and kind of uh, try to ask a question to try and bring people down um, so that the, it's the right tone, it's the right spirit. And so much of this was like boomer sensibilities versus millennial sensibilities. Mm. And I was going, this is not working. This is not going to work. This is not going to play well on social media. And I... I made a couple of jokes that I had to go to the women um, a month later, a month and a half later, and apologize for. Um, and mm. I just tried to minimize. Uh, what I, what I sh what I say is, I tried to bring the energy back down and the tone back down in those family meetings. But by making a joke, I minimized what the women were experiencing. I wish I didn't do that. The story, the credibility, yeah. the credibility, and yeah. that's that's yeah. Uh, that's on yeah. me. And then two, I think the trust piece, I didn't know who I could trust. And so one a of- huge lesson in that. Yeah. And, and one of the things I, I ended up doing because I didn't feel like I was getting the whole story right. is I went rogue. And, and, and meaning I ended up going to reach out to each of the women to basically say, hey, there's no reason for you to trust me. Um, but would you tell me your story? Cause I don't feel like I'm getting it all. And these women courageously did that two, three months in that really helped me see how long they had been carrying this, what they had been walking through, what they had endured, which caused me to then have to respond. But because I didn't, I, I lacked the trust of certain people. Um, I, I, I went rogue. And so I wish I would have, and I don't know if I, if I could have done it differently because mm -hmm. when you have a breakdown of trust, I just, but I wish I would have trusted a couple of more people who now I know were probably closer in alignment with me. But in that moment, I just, I didn't know. And I just needed to get to the bottom of the truth. I mean, I had turned my basement into like, it looked like the set of Scandal, the show, like with the pictures. And I was trying to figure out all these stories because many of the women I had never actually met. I knew yeah. of their names, but I didn't know them. Um, and so I didn't have personal relationships with them. So part of it was the, I got to figure this out. What is actually true? And who can I trust? And again, what's the next best right step forward? So, so you you think it was a mistake to talk to the women, or you wish you'd talk to them sooner, or or what? No, I just I, I not that I think it's a mistake. I think it was a a piece that I went at it alone, and because I and I wish I could have, um, I wish I would have trusted uh, two elders in particular. I think they were mm -hmm. closer in alignment that I could say, hey, you need to trust me, but I got to get to the bottom of this. I just, I, I had just was getting these rumblings and I felt like, you know, for a few months, every day I was learning something new, something, a new fact or a new allegation mm. or a new story or a new conversation or a new way something had been interpreted. And I was going, why, why is this happening? And, and here's again, another worst spot for any young leader to ever be in is when you have all the influence but with no actual authority. Mm. Yeah, because so you were how old when the, in 2018? I was 38. 
And yeah. so I had, yeah. you know, Bill stepped down. I had the influence of the congregation there. We loved each other. There was something beautiful there, but I wasn't an elder. I, mm. I did not have authority for like, this is what needs to happen. So all the influence and people had probably ex- believed I had more authority than I did, but I think that, um, that was a hard piece for me to navigate as well. Um, having all of that influence and trust from the con- congregation to do the right thing, but not actual the decision-making power to see it all the way f- forward. So I just wish today, if I could go back, um, I could have found uh, just some space in me to go, I gotta, I'm got. i going to trust you. And it might, not, it might not work for me, but I need you to know I'm going to speak to these women. And um, I think I wish I would have not been on that stage. Those are two easy ones for me that I look back and go, oh, I wish I would have done that differently. So is it kind of like speak less, listen more in a situation like that? Is it that, or is it, is it different than that? Um, well, I, I, I think it's, I think in this culture today, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit guilt by association, but I think more than that, by being on that stage, I represented that I was in solidarity to what was coming out of the mouths of other people. Right. And right. and I think not knowing the full story, if I had known the full story and I was in full backing, then I should be on the stage. But not knowing the full story, mm. what it did was I felt like it was using my trust chips to almost go out to the congregation to go, see, look at all of these people are in alignment. So you can trust us. When I... um there were parts when you didn't I, have an independent ability to verify 100%. that, which you then got later, but by that time, damage yeah, was done. Those 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 moments had yes. happened. One of the things, and I, for the record, I wrote, didn't see it coming. The manuscript was turned in long before the Willow scandal broke. Um, but I, you're right. I was very concerned about the moral failure I had seen in leaders. I was concerned about burnout, cynicism, pride. All those things in leadership that honestly, I think at some level we all have to battle. Yes. And there isn't a section on affairs or abuse, but there is, you know, a section on cynicism and irrelevance and emptiness, which I think leaders bring. I would love to get your mind because it's not just Willow. Sadly, these stories keep coming. They keep surfacing. Um, it is, it, I mean, I feel, I feel sick as I ask this question. Because you you always think, okay, it's going to be over, right? And then it's not over. There's more. There's, and it's it's all kinds of denominations, all kinds of leadership. What is it um, in your mind about why moral failings by leaders, pastors and leaders, is such an epidemic these days? Man, that's. I think that's something I've 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 wrestled with myself, just trying to um, trying to make sense of because you know there were there was a there was a run the past year where it felt like every month um, a spiritual giant, yep, somebody knew, you know, and and I don't think anybody just wakes up one day and goes, you know what, today I want to do, Carrie, I want to train wreck my life, I want to sabotage every relationship, every ounce of integrity, every gift that's been entrusted to me, I just want to do that. I don't think it happens, but it, it really, I feel like, seems to happen slowly but surely. And, you know, Dave Chappelle, the comedian, he signs a, a $50 million contract with Comedy Central. Episode five, he tells a joke. 
and the room erupts in laughter and he doesn't think the laughter is worth the actual delivery of his joke. He thinks Ooh. it's off. And he has a moment where he's like, all they see is dollar signs. And he walks off the set, calls his driver, driver like, says, I'll be there in two minutes. Walks out, driver goes, where do you wanna go? Take me to the airport. On the way to the airport, he's looking for flights, gets there, American, Delta, wherever. He goes, take me to the farthest place. They find out that you can go to South Africa. He goes to South Africa in three hours, hasn't told anybody. He goes to a monastery. He stays there for a month. And then six months later, like every celebrity who's trying to, you know, return, he finds himself on a couch with Oprah. And I don't know how Oprah does this, man. He like, she looks into his eyes. He starts to cry. And she just looks at him and goes, why do you do it? Why'd you do it, Dave? Why? And he says this line, I'll never forget it. He says, because sometimes success can take you places that character cannot sustain you. Mm. And I come back to that. You hit it again. I feel like I could plug, didn't see coming like again and again, but you talk about character development. Yeah, I got a whole we, section on character. And yeah. we push competency again and again over the development of our character. And, and I think what ends up happening with a lot of these young leaders, and again, in, in the mega church world, is you have people who are vying for your attention. You have yeah. book deals, you have conferences, you have side hustles with other organizations that you've started, you know, you've got speaking, you've got the pressures of leading a church. And again, this world just gets bigger and bigger and bigger than what your character can sustain. And so the natural response is take a shortcut. Mm -hmm. And the natural response is nobody understands how hard it is and nobody gets what you're doing. You're the only one who cares about this. And slowly but surely, you will look for a release. It's just human nature. You are gonna look for a place to put that sadness, a place to escape. And it can be in food. It doesn't have to be sex. It, it, right, right. It can be in money. It can be in more power. But again, it is a addiction that often takes people into places. And then I think sometimes, I think some guys actually want out and they don't know how to actually do it well. And it's easier for them to, to blow it all up. Um, I had that conversation. I think I'd tell the story and didn't see it coming very anonymized. But when I was a young leader up here, I've been in the same place for over 25 years. Same people, same community, same bride, all that stuff, which is awesome. After a while, it just becomes awesome, right? Yeah. That you're doing decades long relationships with these people. But I remember as a young leader, our church had started to grow, but the big church was in a town nearby and it came out that the pastor had an affair with his assistant, ended up in the back row of our church. And I took him out for lunch one day and I just said, why'd you do it? And he said the pressure of, and it wasn't like thousands, it was hundreds, but the pressure was so great. He said, I just didn't know what to do. And this was easier. It was easier to step back because I did something immoral than to say, I don't know how to lead this thing anymore. I've never forgotten that. That was over 20 years ago. And I'm like, wow. And that put in me, you know, you think about it. You're right. Platform has its challenges. I have a moderate size platform, you know, and it's not huge, not household names, but I'm so thankful I didn't have that in my 30s because I don't know what would have happened. Like, right. 
I just had my hand on the plow trying to figure out every day, right? And working with the people in my immediate site rather than, you know, a, a larger ministry. But man, it's hard. And I get those pitfalls. Um, do you think governance, I mean, governance has been part of the Willow story, but not just Willow, many other churches. Do you think governance can stop that? Like better governance, different governance? Or do you think it's like a, a personal thing? Like, can you just cheat any system you happen to be in? Like, it's a question I ask. I think so. I think you can cheat. You can cheat anything. You know, mm. I think you can. Um, I think, I think unless you are walking in a level of humility that you have given permission and you are so clear, hey, I have this propensity to make this about me or to create the easiest pathway or to put people who are just yes people on my board. Like unless you're able to really kind of interrogate the decisions you make, I think you can gamify anything. You can, you can make anything work for you. Um, and, and even the system, you know, the, the system at which, um, you know, for me, the one of the breakdowns in the governance model was, and I'm I, I love the Carver model. Um, that's mm. what Willow was doing, and I I had done and been a part of that in a couple of other organizations. But it but the way that it was interpreted is different from the other places that I had been. And right. what I mean by that was the CEO would talk to the staff, and the CEO would only talk to the CGO, and that mm. would be the board chair. And the CGO then would only talk to the other elders or the other board members. So what it did was it created a one-on-one -on -one dynamic, which right. that's, that, that I think loses the essence of robust dialogue. It loses the essence. So I think then that puts it who has the more power in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Mm. Um, and it plays to one person's strengths over another. So I think what we have to do is is really take into account our shadow sides. We have to take into account our natural giftings and go, how do we almost create a board that protects us from ourselves and protects the, the mission and the vision and the beauty of what is trying to be accomplished, whether in a local church or in the marketplace or another great NGO? Yeah, I'm not saying there are better or worse forms of government. Clearly, there are terrible forms of government right. and great forms of government. But I, I would probably be with you on that. Like, unless you're really, and I think the key word in what you said for me is humility. Like, yeah. if you're willing to submit yourself to someone else, because you can, it can look great on paper, but you can basically set something up where everybody serves you. And, you know, as Andy Stanley said many times, Unless you're in the kingdom of God, power flows up. All the benefits flow to the person at the top in the kingdom of God that gets reversed. Um, but yeah, you use your power to to serve others and you're accountable. And that's a very different reality. Um, any other thoughts on why all the... Like you kind of get into it. We're going to talk about your book, The Thing Beneath the Thing. So maybe maybe we can save it for that. But this is, this is part of the reason I wrote Didn't See It Coming and do some of the other work I do is I'm, I'm concerned. And, you know, I'm seeing a counselor right now to make sure that I finish well, right? Like, I don't want to blow it. <laughs> like, I don't want to, I don't want to end up, how do you end up there? Right. And I think when you think you can't, maybe you do, I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out. 
Well, it's funny is going into this interview, you know, I, I just went back through some of my journals and uh, after I read a book, I usually will just kind of quotes for notes is what I'll do. And I wrote down 11, um, back in, I think September 15th of 2018 of after I had read your book, but you had one quote in there. No, no matter how hard you try, you can't escape you. And, and I, I think often I've been trying for many years, singularly unsuccessful. (laughs) Right. Me too. You know, and I think it's, we try whether in performance, we try in so many places to escape the pain points of our life. But, and we actually think the more that, the more good that we do, um, will give us a free pass or we don't have to like address. And, you know, you, you talk about this, you, you can't address what you can't, what you don't are unwilling to confess. Like, I think the level of humility that is required to finish well Hmm. is being able to not just say I was wrong when we say yes to Jesus, but to live a life that can be clearly, "Ah, I was wrong in that meeting. I I was wrong um, with, with how I quoted that and didn't give actual like uh, name recognition to that idea. I was wrong. Like, I think leaders have to be quicker to saying that they were wrong. And if they're not, then they're, that power flowing up, like you mentioned with Andy Stanley, we will find ourselves justifying. You talk about this again. I feel like I, we should just make this about didn't see it coming because everyone <laughs> needs to read that book. It's such a great book. But like Thank literally, you. We, you will start to justify your actions. Yeah. And the, you'll and excuse when it. You, you won't explain it. You'll excuse it and justify it. Exactly. And when you start moving that, it's only a matter of time until you don't finish well. I hear you on that. And, you know, one of the things that I'm encouraged, a lot of young leaders listening, I think I see more humility in millennials and in Gen Z than perhaps I see in older Xers and boomers. And that's a broad categorization. But, you know, the ability to say, yep, I'm still struggling. The ability to say, "I, I make mistakes. The ability not to defend and try to preserve is really hard if you've had any modicum of success along the way. And I remember a conversation we had, uh, maybe correct me on the time frame. maybe a month after you resigned from Willow. And I think you were literally in the desert. If I remember, I remember where I was, I was in my driveway when I took that phone call and we talked for a while, a month or two later, what emotions are you unpacking as you know, your dream job, which you thought you had in succession appeared to be going well until this sick underbelly got revealed of what was really going on. And, you know, now you got a whole new life, whole new future. You're still reeling. What's going on inside you, Steve? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I'd go to a local Starbucks. We live two minutes from Willow, three minutes mm-hmm. from Willow. And, you know, I, I think for for a lot of people in that congregation, they they didn't know the actual story. So that all they had was just news reports. And, and this was a place where there's sweat equity. There was, there was people who had given They've invested their, for decades. Decades. You know what I mean? So this just didn't make sense. There was so much. And um, I think what was so tricky was uh, people were so pot committed to the idea of this church. They had such pride in their church. Um, and this was, this was just hard. Um, because this, this dealt with people that they had, they loved, they respected. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night 
And I felt like God said, go to the desert and wait for instructions. And I, I like, it hit me. I got up, grabbed my journal. I started to write more. Like, what does it mean? Like, I'm thinking metaphorically. Yeah, go not to the a lot desert. of deserts near Chicago. So. Right, right. So I, I just start writing and I feel like I write this phrase, you can't achieve your way out of this. You can only grieve your way through it. Hmm. And I had all the muscle in the world to achieve. I mean, I, I was a guy who created goals. You know, I'm a 5'11 guy with no jump shot. I had a goal to play Division One basketball. Play is probably not the right word because I sat the bench, but I got free shoes and I played Division One basketball. Like, I, I was a guy who had goals and went after it. I had no muscle when it came to grieving and to sitting in my sadness. And so I the next morning, my wife wakes up and I tell her, hey, this is, this is, this is what I felt like I heard. And she teared up and she said, Steve, I've been sensing the same thing. I just want to go home. And she was from Arizona. And mm-hmm. I realized, oh, this is literal. We are going to the desert. Wow. And so I, I ended up buying as many books about the desert fathers and desert mothers. Um, and just because like Eugene Peterson will teach us, you know, your, your geography is so connected to your understanding of theology and how the desert um, had really shaped some of these first Christians. Um, and and desert comes from the idea of the deserted place. And I felt like in many ways, that sense of the dreams I had were deserted. Hmm. And the desert became this great untangling, untangling for what I thought was true, what that wasn't, what I believed to be false, but was actually true. I mean, it untangled stuff about my identity. It untangled stuff about how I viewed my gifting, my worth. It it got me to the core. And with a crazy piece about the desert, and you read Deuteronomy 8, you, you, you see the gift that the desert is, is you realize we are desert people. That mm. There is a stripping away. There is a, a reshaping of the heart in every leader. It doesn't matter if you're in the marketplace. It doesn't matter if you're in a church. You will go through these desert seasons. And I realize if I can't do the desert well, I'll never be able to do the promised land well. And for many of us leaders, we're trying to bypass the desert, bypass the wrestling, the stripping away, the confessing, the grieving, and the, the almost the, the recognizing how we've just kind of drifted. And I think for me, the desert has saved me. Like I, I, I would not have chosen it. And I'm so grateful it chose me um, because it has taught me so much um, and, and allowed my roots to go so much deeper um, than any stage could have ever done. I think John Mark Comer says we often romanticize the desert, but he says it's actually our spiritual fathers and mothers. No, that was a place of torture. That is the dark night yeah. of the soul. That is yeah. the ripping apart, I'm not going to make it. And um, what were one or two lessons that kind of God seared on your heart during your desert time? Yeah. You know, I think one of the the, the easiest for me was realizing, you know, there's we kind of live in this time right now with simple tweetable phrases, you know, uh, God is with me. And we love that. It's, it's fantastic. Or, um, and then it goes through a struggle and it's almost this, this kind of three stage discipleship formation. We go through this like simple statement that then ends up going through this struggle. And we wonder like, 
is God really with me here mm. in that dark night of the soul? Is God really with me in this deserted place? And then all of a sudden you recognize he is and he starts to surprise you. And now that simple phrase has gone through the fire and the struggle and it becomes something profoundly sacred. And I realized some of these statements, these theological realities that I had believed, but they had been removed from struggle. And then as they went through the struggle, they have a level of meaning um, and depth to them that I go, gosh, like this is, this is what is preparing me for what God has next. I think secondly is I, when you're in the desert, you, you have to focus on what you can control. There's a lot you can't, can't control. And I think being able to control, okay, this is what I need to bring for this hike up Camelback Mountain or this trek. This is what I can, I can control. The more that I began to become so familiar with, I can't control with what they're saying, what they're tweeting, what they're thinking, what people are, are messaging me. I can't control the next, um, next phase of what outcome at Willow. I can't control. Here's what I can control. And let's just focus in on that. And let's work towards that. And I felt like for me, I stopped looking in other people's yards and I was able to focus in what God had entrusted to me and start to create, in my opinion, um, some, some beautiful things. And that's been a real gift that I think before my head was probably way too much on a swivel wondering, what are they saying? What are they thinking? What's this? What's this? Um, and I think it's hard to keep the remain thing, the remaining and abiding in Christ when your head's constantly on a swivel. Yeah, a couple of thoughts. It's exactly what Tim Keller said in a recent interview that I had the privilege of doing with him that, you know, when he was rethinking suffering in light of his cancer diagnosis and treatment, he didn't, he didn't like have new beliefs, but he went over the beliefs he had had for all of his life. And he's like, I wrote a book on suffering, but then all of a sudden it meant something. I'm like, yes. you know, these were intellectual truths, but he goes, now all of a sudden it, it gripped me in a way it hadn't. One, one thing that, um, might be, yeah, we can move on if it's not helpful, but you, I just thought about it and what you said, like people are probably writing all kinds of things about you and your role on the internet and hitting you up for comments. And every time you look at your phone, there's dozens of new DMs. What did you learn about responding or not responding or how to respond? Or I don't remember you being particularly active in those few months after. Was it better just to, to sort of get your own soul in shape or like what, what advice would you have for leaders? And I'm not interested in a spin angle or anything like that. That's not where I'm going. I'm just like, how do you as a human deal with that kind of unnatural attention for a situation that arguably you didn't even know existed? Yeah, I think that's the hard part, you know, is is all of this will bring to light your unchecked motivations. Mm. And as a three, you know, image management is there. Um, you know, uh, protecting how people perceive you, um, you know, you can, you can say that you're not the hero, but somehow you can slowly, but surely over time, create narratives and stories where that threes tend to do this. And I think I had to be really, really aware who were the heroes, the brave women, the women Mm -hmm. who did the right thing. Um, why did I do what I did simply because I had a value of integrity and two, 
I thought it should be handled differently. And three, I just wanted to actually support what I felt like the women were bravely doing. So I'm, I tend to live my life with, if I don't understand it, how do I put it into a basketball play? Cause I understand basketball mm. or how do I put it into a framework? Because a healthy framework will make my life work. And I think as all of this was coming at me, I had to make some values. You're not the hero. So do not post anything. You might want to, but make sure you reread that. And who's the hero in this story? It's not you. It was the women. It mm. was the women. Hey, what in you is trying to take revenge? What in you is trying to, um, because people are saying negative things about you, to try and deflect it. Hmm. You, you've, and I'm not saying I always did that well, but man, you, I, I had to internalize and find healthy outlets to channel it. I think this is like the the power of the Psalms because you know you read the Psalms and they are graphic. David going, man, I am, I am so angry at my enemies. God, I wish you would just like crush their heads, you know, with a big rock. Blessed be the name of the Lord, you know? But But I think what David knew was, I don't need to put that on Twitter. I need to give that to you. And I think for me, it was where, what is the healthy response that's going to help the cause of the women? And then what is the healthy, the unhealthy response that's going to help the cause of Steve? And Hey, if that's unhealthy, I have someone I can bring that to. Um, one that is free, that's God, and one that costs money, and that's my counselor. And I can I can do that. And so so I looked for um, I think helpful and healthy responses. Again, I didn't always do that right, but I'm trying to step back and go, when crisis comes, you have to change adversity into an opportunity. And it will be an opportunity for your brokenness to be more exposed, your fear to be more exposed, or it'll be an opportunity for you to demonstrate the kind of person that you want to be and the kind of person that you truly are. But that's where the character formation and the desert and the trusting um, is truly showcased and exposed. So your new podcast, Crafting Character, which I'm a subscriber of, really enjoy it. Um, I love how it's the craft of preaching, the craft of sermon writing, but also about character. So you've embraced podcasting, which I'm really excited about. You got a book, which we'll talk about. What? How did you decide what the ne- next chapter held? Man, Kerry, I, honestly, I was spinning. I mean, I, I, mm. I knew... Uh, church leadership. I knew church world. I, you know, you you tell me the day of the week and the time of the day. I could tell you what I was doing. I, my hmm. structure breeded freedom for me, and now I'm my own CEO, <laughs> and I I I don't have anybody else telling me what to do. I don't have any structure, and I kind of was like swirling a little bit. And I have some friends over at the Patterson Center. Um, and a buddy of mine, uh, Neil, does a life plan. And he said, hey, let's let's do a life plan. It's 48 hours. Um, you run through your life. You, you come out with a calling statement. And I ended up coming up with four buckets. And the buckets simply were preaching, coaching, writing, and sports, because I just love sports. Mm. And then the question became, okay, well, how are you going to actually monetize this? How are you going to give yourself yeah, to yeah. this? Got to eat at some point. E- exactly, yeah. right? And so I think what it ended up helping me was, again, what can I can control? This is what I'd love to do. This is what I would do wherever I was. 
Now, how do we take steps to do that and build a schedule and build a life that actually works? And and who are some models of this? And I started reaching out and getting some real great coaching and help. But it it I was able to say, this is what I would love to do in this season. Part of the values where I wanted my family to heal well, I wanted to heal well, and then I wanted to do good church work. Um, but I also knew me running to another senior pastor role would be me escaping the pain. And I would probably transmit my pain on somebody else. And so I wanted to make make sense of that. Why didn't you leave ministry altogether? You're still in ministry, but why didn't you just quit the church? Stay a Christian and quit the church. Because the church didn't do me wrong. Five mm. people did. Mm. Willa didn't hurt me. Five people did. So, mm. so deep down, Jesus didn't let me down. God didn't let me down. Holy Spirit didn't let me down. It, 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 for me, it's very, very practical. Five people, five good people did evil. A lot, of, a lot of good people got played and a lot of good people got left holding the bag. This is what happens in crisis. But none of those people were God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit. Um, now, five of those people represented the church, but for me, I just, I saw it there and that became my own spiritual process to say, ah, this isn't the institution's fault. Now, there's a lot of institution stuff that we can talk about, deconstruct, reconstruct, but that's, for me, it was really, really basic and practical and allowed me to actually practice forgiveness, practice my own issues, and practice what I've been preaching, hopefully for the last 20 years, about the gift and how forgiveness truly is a solo sport. Hmm, hmm. It's helpful to think about that. You know, I, I did an Instagram poll, highly scientific, but lots of people, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> 77% of people thought about quitting in the last year, which is crazy yeah. to me. Yeah. And, you know, there's a Barna stat much cited. I've cited it. 29% of senior pastors seriously thought about quitting without a scandal, crisis, abuse, anything. It's just like leadership is hard. So it's good to know you're teaching at churches you have a podcast, and let's talk about your book. I love the title, "The Thing Beneath the Thing." It's genius. What does that mean? Yeah, so I, I had a a moment, you know, in in probably twenty oh eight or two thousand eight, and I was um, on the verge of moving from Grand Rapids, Michigan, to take a a, a role at Rock Harbor Church in Costa mm-hmm. Mesa, and I it was a kind of crazy weather day very stormy. And someone, uh, as I was driving back with my wife and nine month old, threw a chunk of ice at my car and it hit our car. And I, I swerved and I didn't know that someone had thrown something. Then I I started thinking about it as like the cortisol is rushing to my head. I'm like, someone just threw something at us. I pull the car over. I leave my wife and my kids on the side of the road. I see somebody running and I take off like a crazy person. I call it my moment of madness. And, and it ends up, you fast forward, like I am freezing cold. I run into a pond. I'm chasing these people into a, through a field into a suburban neighborhood. And it ends up, I knock on the door that I see them run into. And, I, and an older gentleman comes and I'm like, hey, did someone just run into here? I just need to talk to him for a second. And I got soaking wet pants. The guy looks at me and goes, oh, my, my grandson and his friend did. Door opens up a few minutes later, and it's two junior hires, and I, I'm having this moment where I feel like God whispers to me, He's like, "Who's the crazy one now?" Like, 
You left your wife and nine-month-old on the side of the road. You ran. What is going on? And I realized that was the last time I was going to see my grandparents. Uh, It was the last time I was going to see my dad for a while who had leukemia. Um, The buyers who who said they were going to buy our house had backed out that night. And all of this was in me. All of this energy, all of this sadness, and a and a junior hire gave me a place to channel that energy when they threw a chunk of ice. And I called a mentor the next day and I said, Rob, like what what do I do with this? And he just said, he laughed and he said, Hey, welcome to the endless pursuit of getting after the thing beneath the thing, getting after what is really going on. And that just stuck with me. And Fast forward a few years, I just always use that phrase because I, I, it made me become more emotionally uh, conscious mm-hmm. and aware of my feelings. And I realized that thing slowly but surely became this acronym um, for me to go, gosh, like I have this energy inside me. And if, I, if it goes unchecked, it's going to go somewhere. It's going to go somewhere. So um, that's kind of the heart of the book is getting after what's really going on and why we do what we do and what to do about it. I mean, you sent me an early copy uh, and I had the privilege of endorsing it, but like it was laugh out loud funny. It was perceptive. It's uh, it's theologically sound, a rare combination there. But, you know, my life, like I kind of realized that, right? You get upset in a meeting. You think about how this impacts leadership. Your boss goes crazy on you one day and you're like, what was that about? It wasn't about the report. It wasn't about Sunday service. It wasn't about last month's sales and business. It's like, well, maybe his wife hates him and, you know, his kids aren't really fond of him right now or he's got financial problems you don't know about. And it just kind of comes out there's a thing beneath the thing and I look at my life I think I could probably narrate that my whole life's about control you know wow. and trying to Enneagram 8 the whole narrative is about control and how do you unpack that and why do you hesitate to delegate and why do you hesitate to you know what is that it's a thing beneath the thing it's just so helpful for leaders uh, so you write you said for the first time in a long time I was in touch with my body my feelings, my sadness, the deeper parts of me. And I absolutely hated it. Can you think that that is so I'm like, yeah, I've been there. Uh, Can you explain that moment, that observation, that insight? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think we always have this sense, especially as a, as a preacher and teacher that Sunday's coming. I got, Mm. I got, I, I often don't want to have to spend time getting after the thing beneath the thing because I literally know I got to stand up in front of people and I want to make sure that, you know, I can do that well. And again, it's in capacity of like, I got to be able to have competency at at what I do. But truth be told, like if I'm not giving attention to my character and it's going to limit my actual ability, it's going to be a lid on it. And what, that quote you referenced to kind of came out of, I did a detox and for um, a month, my wife and I really tried to eat really, really clean and healthy. And I, I took away Dr. Pepper, which, you know, that was like a Trinity for me, father, son, and Dr. Pepper. Like that's, that would give me a lift. Um, I use food as an escape. Um, and I realized that as I started to take things away, I could feel it in my body, these toxins that were there. 
and I could feel these urges that I that I had somehow suppressed. And what I began to realize is, oh my goodness, like this is what I'm pumping through my body. This hmm. is what I am, whether through just chasing success, whether through food, whether through experience, it is all in me. And now I was becoming aware of what's really driving you, Steve. What's the real motivation? And I think as I got really clear and honest about that, I had to look back and go, oh, I don't like this. Mm. I, don't, I don't like this one bit. And again, if my dream is to finish well, man, there is some stuff that needs to be cleaned up and needs to become more aware and brought to the surface, or it's going to affect every relationship and every potential possibility that God puts before me for me to step into well and honor him or dishonor me and my family and dishonor him. What were one or two of those things that you're like, man, I got to clean this up in my thirties or it's going to be a big issue by the time I get to my fifties. You know, what's funny is, you know, I, I, a buddy of mine and I were talking and, and his mentor told him that the three hardest years for most men, most leaders is 38 through 41. Hmm. And you're right there. I, it's your last yeah, few years. Exactly. And so I, I was like, hey, thanks for telling me this. It was like right when I turned 38. And he goes, no, and he's like, he's like, just think about this. And, they, and the, the, the mentor said, you typically have to wrestle your ego to the ground. Your body's changing. You're realizing you, you probably aren't where you thought you would be. Um, you're kind of leaning more closely to a specific lane that this is what your life's going to be. You're going through a level of sadness because of some of that stuff, but also a parent dying. Mm. Um, and you're going through like kind of the uniqueness of fathering and mothering in this time. And I just, I just realized like, oh my goodness, like the level of story work that I had not done. And my dad ends up dying six months after I leave Willow. I mean, there, there was just a level of thing after thing that I could feel the temptation to want to escape, want to numb out, want to just, because I didn't have the muscles to grieve. And so, mm. so part of that is I just had to recognize my propensity to achieve at all costs. Um, and, you know, my, my wife and I, we've had to process this, you know, um, I had this one moment with Pete Scazzaro back in the day and he had come and spoken at this church I was at in Michigan and I got to drive him from Grand Rapids to Holland. Mm. And I, had, again, in my Honda Civic and driving and he just is asking me questions and I don't think he liked the answer I gave him. And, you know, if you don't know Pete Scazzaro, he, he wrote yeah. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He means a, he's, he's been a, a guest. Deep, we'll link to him yeah, in the show notes. Yeah. He's a deep, deep thinker. But he told me to pull the car over on the freeway. <laughs> I'm like, what? And he's like, pull it over right now. And he's from Queens. He's got a great New York oh, accent. Oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's got that vibe. Yeah, and he's like, when did you get married? And I, I March 6th. And he's like, who did you marry? And I'm like, Sarah. And he goes, that's right. You didn't marry Mars Hill Bible Church. You married Sarah. You know, And he just went after me. And then he gets done after five minutes of just just kind of pouring into me, but convicting me and challenging me. And then he's like, now you can take me to Holland. And I just, I, I just remember this moment going, he was right. In my thirties, I had my brides confused. Mm. Um, and I didn't have partnership. I had like, 
I gotta, I gotta actually provide for my family. And so I, this is at the best way. So I think part of thirties is for me, it was wrestling down the ego, wrestling down, um, my just need to achieve and having to like actually really discover what true partnership in a marriage is all about. Interesting. You know, 38 to 41, for the record, my hardest years, for sure. There was the slide into burnout. I burned out when I was 41. And, you know, wow. I feel like that's a hinge in my life. Like yep. 41 to now is 15 years. The prior 15 years were law school and, you know, the first decade and a half of ministry, whatever. Um, here's an academic question, maybe a bad one. You've been through a lot over the last three years. Let's say the succession plan at Willow had gone as planned. There was no abuse there. Like, don't we wish that that had happened, that there was none of that story was true. So let's just say for some reason you ended up, you know, Mm -hmm. taking over as the original plan was. Do you think your character as it was developed then would have been able to withstand the pressures of ministry from what you know now? Wow. That's a great question. Um, You know, here's the one thing I would say is Willow had the resources to uh, provide coaching and to take care and, you know, help out. So I think- And you can take Willow out of it. Put yourself in any mega church at 38 being the successor, um, you know, and you're speaking to 20,000 people on a weekend. Yeah. I want to say I hope so, um, but That's a good I mean, I, th- answer. I think it's I think it's a um, you know it, one of the things I I say every weekend that I'm done teaching, you know, and I'm walking to my car is I'm one weekend closer to finishing well, mm. um, and it's just mm. I just broke it down to weekends, just one weekend closer, just mm. one weekend closer, and you know, 41. I you know if I do this for till I'm 65, I got another 24 years, but that's just from a teaching standpoint, if I make yeah. it to 82, yeah. I'm like halfway there, you know? And so it's like one weekend closer, one weekend mm-hmm. closer. So I think it's like living in front, I, having that reality be in front of me. Um, but I'll tell you, man, I don't think anyone felt prepared for 2020. Um, the level <laughs> no. of criticism, the level, like everything the changed. Anger, and the anger, the division, the bitterness oh, yeah. online. The so I think that would have been, that would have been really hard for me. It just would have been really hard to me. And I think some of my, um, you know, more the edges of people pleasing, the edges of trying to not be able to see people, you know, it becoming more digital, the division, having to speak up, what's speaking up enough or not too much, like all of that, that that would have created a lot of stress and gray. Um, but I think it would have been really, really refining in a lot of ways as well. So I hope so, but I think it would have exposed a lot in me. I think that's a really good answer, man. Like if you ask me, are you going to finish well? It's like, I hope so. So I'm working on it every day. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know that you could ever say, oh yeah, absolutely. Cause you yeah. know, boom, there you go. Yeah. Or or no, I'm a disaster. Well, it's kind of true. Believe in total depravity. I've lived long okay. enough to to have some, you know, truth there. Now these are these are the deep questions. And one of my heartbeats is I just want to see leaders lead well and I want to see them be well. Do you know yes. what I mean? Yes. Forget lead well, just be well. Yes. Just be well. And out of being yes. well, you will lead well. And that's why I love conversations like this. Okay, you talk about your book, you talk about hiding. Where do leaders go to hide? How, how do we hide? 
Yeah. So, so the acronym for the thing beneath the thing is you have triggers and that's mm. the setup that's going to set you off. So there's that energy. And what I've just come to find out from, you know, 20 some years of ministry is that you're typically going to go to a few different places. And the first place that most of us go, we see it in the garden. Yeah, walk us through the acronym. It. Just take us yeah. through the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we often see like when people get triggered, they're going to go somewhere. I mean, I, I was in a meeting yesterday and somebody said something and I could feel myself getting triggered. And oftentimes we carry that in our bodies and we go home and we look for a hideout. And that hideout is just where we are escaping um, that moment. And what that moment references, that trigger is a clue that there is some other pothole or wound that has gone untended to in our story. So and where, so where do you go? Do you go to the fridge? You mentioned food. That's where I often yeah. go. You know, I, I typically, food is a big one. Um, two, oftentimes I'll purchase something. Mm. I, I, that whole Amazon, like one yeah, click swipe, buy. One click. Oh, it's yeah. just like, I, thing like, I, I have need. to, yeah. yeah, I have to walk away from that. And I think, again, that's just something that I can escape to. Or um, for me, it's, escaping to experience and mm. and just I, I almost need some kind of story that's going to lift me out of this place instead of just being honest and human to go, hey, why did you get triggered? Get curious, get humble. What's, what's going on there? The second place that I think a lot of us go is to insecurity. And mm. so you get triggered, you go to hideout, the I, you go to insecurity. And insecurity, I think we often think about is playing less than which is true. We we often oh, I, I'm so lame. Like we we create false stories about ourselves. Like I should know better. I should be better. Shame storm just comes over. But also insecurity comes in our envy and we start to kind of compare my life where I'm at at 41 with somebody else who's where they're at at 41 and it's a level of comparison or you see this happen a ton is you get triggered and it's a form of insecurity, but it's not powering down. It's literally powering up. I'll and show I gotta, you. Right? I gotta show like you. I'm gonna thing? gain control of this situation. And and that's you see that happen in organizations. Which now that I see it, I go, ah, something triggered them. And mm -hmm. and then the other one is, and we see this on Twitter. We see this, you know, in news. We see this just in real life more than ever. Is we get triggered. And then we create a false narrative about others. And the N is narrative. And it's those people. Mm. It's blue state. It's red state. It's those people. It's, it's everyone who listens to this syndicate. It's da-da-da. And all of a sudden, we don't, again, get humble and curious. But the easier thing is to channel all of that toxic energy or that sadness towards those people. And... Mm. You know, if you ever read like Esther chapter three, the and just read it backwards. Love Esther. Oh, it's such a great book. But you read it backwards, chapter three. The last verse of chapter three says, the king and his right-hand man sat down for a drink and all the people were bewildered. Which makes you wonder if you're reading it backwards, like in memento style, go, well, why are they bewildered? And you realize two verses earlier, a massive genocide was decreed. And you go, well, why was it de genocide decreed? And you start to back it all the way up, and it's because one guy doesn't bow fully to the king's right-hand man, 
and he gets triggered and he goes, I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to kill all your people. And he creates this false narrative. Now, when we get triggered, we're probably not going to try and have a massive genocide happen, but we do this. We villainize. Yeah. We create Haman stories. Is the guy, and he is Haman, a fascinating yeah. character study. Oh my it goodness. It is. Yeah. You know, and so, so again, it's just in that. But then I think the greatest leaders that I know when they get triggered, they see this as an opportunity for grace. And mm. grace is what makes us whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. And John Wesley had three stages of grace. And a word that I think has kind of gone out of style for my generation is sanctification, which mm. is the process that makes us whole and holy and spiritual, spiritually healthy. And so I just go, if we're being triggered, it's usually connected to an older wound. And this is an opportunity that God loves us so much that he wants to keep bringing people into our lives until we honor this pain, this wound, this potholes truth. And when we're able to invite grace in, man, we become better humans. Like you just talked about, we become well. And when we are well, we're better leaders, we're better followers, we're better husbands and wives and, and fathers and mothers. We're just better people, better leaders. Hmm. Yeah, it was Haman. He, he's, I'd love to write something on Haman one day, but kind of triggered this thought in me that a life devoted to self, he was all about him, ultimately leaves you alone. Yes. There's just so much irony in that story. And it's, it's so, wow, fascinating. Um, anything else? So the thing, anything else on the acronym? So that's a narrative. And uh, yeah, and then G is just grace. And I think grace, grace gotcha. yep. And so you've got the triggers, hideouts, insecurity, narratives, grace. And it's just, it's an opportunity to help people really become aware of what triggers you, but also mm. become aware of what are those hideouts? What are the stories you tell about yourselves? What are the stories that you tell about others? And then what might God want to do? I, I Last thing I'd say about it is just, you know, when I read that Paul writes, you know, basically, why do I do the things I do? You know, the, the good I want to do, I do not do. But the stuff I don't want to do, the stuff I hate, I keep doing. And I think every leader, every pastor, every human has had moments where they can feel so connected to the words of Paul. And I, I think the more that I've gotten curious, the more I realize, oh, I know I did that. The bigger question is, why did I want that? Why mm. did I want that? I, you do what you want to do. The bigger question is, why? I wanted to fight with my wife so that there'd be a little bit of angst so that I could go buy what I wanted to buy. Let's talk mm. about that. Why did you do what you do? Like getting curious about that. And what are you running from? And if you don't have the courage to actually lean into that, man, it's going to be harder for you to lean in when crisis comes when struggle comes, when pain comes. And so again, uh, like you so beautifully said it, you can try to run away from you, but you can't hide from you. And the more courage you have to like lean into this, just the better leader, more grace-filled, more healthy and whole person you will. And people are gonna wanna follow you. People are gonna be one around you. And that's what my hope and desire is that as Christ followers, as leaders, as pastors, people can grab hold of this concept and really apply it to their life. I love this conversation. It sounds like we uh, we till the same field these days, Steve. And honestly, I think the questions you're asking, the observations you have, the self-examination you're looking at in many ways is, um, you know, moral failure prevention. 
Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because I think you're right. People don't wake up and go, I'm going to completely blow up everyone's life, including some victims and my own and the church. Like people don't, I'm sure it's happened once or twice, but most people it's subtle. It starts small and the cracks get bigger and the risks get bigger. And it's the unwillingness to ask these questions, to humble yourself, to put yourself under, you know, the microscope, not just you, but other people and to look at the soul because in there are the ingredients for life and death, right? Both of that. So point us a little more toward the solution. I think honestly, having the conversation, I remember a Keller sermon where, oh, I forget what he was saying, but it was something like, you know, how do I know? Why do I, why do I keep messing up? And how do I know if I'll ever be spiritually mature? And he goes, the fact that you're asking the question is actually a sign of spiritual maturity. So, you know, which is good rather than look at how mature I am. What, what, are, what are some more um, thoughts, insights, strategies that can point us toward greater health? Yeah. My wife and I, we, um, we ended up like with my in-laws, uh, buying a little cabin up in the mountains and it, I mean, it had really, really great bones. Um, but just the, the flooring, um, drop down ceilings, all of it was just a, a bit of a train wreck. And so, um, I, I'm, I'm not very handy. Um, but I, we just started demoing this place and what's amazing is they had all of these ceilings in there that blocked the natural light. And as I started to like remove these ceilings and all of a sudden this new light just started to come in. And I, I realized like, as I was doing this, I just felt like in my journal time, and God was saying, this is what I want to do in your heart. And it was almost reminded me of Dallas Willard's renovation of the heart. And, you know, he talks about how grace is opposed to earning, but it's never opposed to effort. And I think sometimes for many of us, we think words like the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of that, that we're just going to naturally drift towards that. But the truth is it takes work. It takes effort. And again, it might just be the basketball player in me is for me, I started to have to almost create a vision statement. And Dallas will talk about this vision, intention, and means, but my vision for the last six months is a life anchored in Jesus is one that has nothing to prove, nothing to lose and nothing to hide. Mm -hmm. Now, underneath that, the intention to go every day with 35,000 choices coming before me, how am I going to choose that? How am I going to choose to actually live a life where I'm not trying to prove my existence or prove my ability. I'm trying to trust Christ. I'm not trying to live like where I'm hiding or losing. No, no, no. I have nothing to lose in the kingdom of God. How do I walk in freedom? And it's not just going to happen. I've literally got to create practices, spiritual exercises that are going to help me. And so each month I've just been choosing one new practice to almost learn how to run that vision play of nothing to prove, nothing to lose, nothing to hide. And it's, it's been helpful for me. So again, for me, it's it's not just knowing theology, but it's the orthopraxy. It's like, how am I now being shaped by these ideas and how are they getting those 18 inches down from my brain to my heart, down to my hands, to what I see, what comes out of my mouth, how I live my life. So I think for, for me in the end of that book, I just try to really give people some real handles and practicals where they can have their own in Dallas language, renovation of the heart and live a life that's truly anchored in the way of Christ and watch how God's spirit makes them more whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. 
Can you give us one or two of those practices that have been meaningful to you, Steve? Yeah. Okay. So I'm such a storyteller. So sorry about this, but I we had a a a buddy of mine we wanted to throw a party for who was a pastor and in his like 60s. So we gathered, grew, had a whole bunch of pastors around him, and we just shared stories. One guy shares this story, and I don't know the guy, but he's really close friends with this pastor that we're honoring. And the guy says that seven years ago, he and this pastor every morning at 5.50 a.m. would call each other because this pastor wanted, like initiated this, and they would call and they would confess their sins to each other from the prior day. They were short with their wife. They weren't present in a meeting. And the first time that this pastor called this guy, he was like, this is the dumbest idea. But the pastor was so like, please, would you do this for me? It will really help me. And they said, yes. I think they've missed like seven days in the course of seven years. He said it was the most transformational experience. They'd end the call with each other, with each person saying to the other, your sins are forgiven. And they would talk not just about the confession, but then what are they going to do differently in the days ahead? And they and this guy was like, my sin pattern changed. Mm. My life changed. But it required me getting up at 5.50 a.m. So my buddy and I were there, and I'm like, I have this statement, nothing to prove, nothing to lose, and nothing to hide. I'm really good at hiding. So I, I think I got to practice this. And so we did it for two months. And I'll tell you, uh, we missed three of the mornings because I slept in, but I literally just putting that into practice and learning the art of confession and hearing a friend of mine say to me, and as a pastor, I'm, us- I'm usually proclaiming this from the stage, your sins are forgiven. Somebody's saying this to me, Steve, your sins are forgiven. Mm. You know, go walk in freedom. It was like, yes. And knowing that I was going to have to say that to somebody, I was like, I don't want to. I, it, it made me really question, do I want to actually escape or go hide out here or think this thought or power up or create this narrative? Because if I'm going to have to confess that, no, no, no. And so so that was one practice. The second one I'll just say is just in solitude. And that was just through hiking, just mm-hmm. being silent, being alone, um, not isolating, but being and having and walking in solitude with God. It was so refreshing me getting after not trying to prove something, but just being still and present in the presence of God. Steve, this is resonating so deeply. Uh, I'm so grateful. So where can people find you online these days and learn more about you in the book? Oh, thanks so much. Um, you go to the thing beneath the thing.com. You can uh, get a free chapter. Um, also you can go to stevecarter.org and then on social media, it's just at Steve Ryan Carter, Steve Ryan Carter. Steve, your gift. Thank you for this conversation, for all the processing and, uh, really, really grateful for you. Carrie, thank you for you. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. I think I speak for so many pastors and so many leaders. Um, you know, one of the, one of the greatest parts, and, and people don't see this behind the scenes that they get the privilege to learn from you from blogs and books and podcasts. But you know, um, I, I don't I don't forget that conversation that we had when I was in the desert, and I just said, "Hey, I don't think I'm ready to talk about it." And you said, "That's great. Um, I'm going to keep checking in, and I just want you to know, like, I I love you, and I'm for you, and I'm here, and I just I uh, I've just watched you." Um, over the last four years, um, just 
say what you mean, mean what you say. And you are a gift to a lot of younger leaders like myself. And thanks for being a guy who I know is going to finish well, but a guy who is an example and a role model to um, so many of us. So blessings to you and keep doing what you are doing. You are truly a gift, brother. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. Well, I hope that was constructive. Steve, I'm so grateful for your voice in all of this. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about why we keep seeing so much moral failure in leaders, in ministry. It happens in business too, but I think it's particularly devastating when it happens in the church, which it's not supposed to. First, I want to tell you a little bit about what's coming up next. I have been looking forward to this for a long time. I have been reading the work of Jean Twenge, for a number of years. She's a professor of psychology at San Diego State University, and she's a global leader in generation research. And we talk about Gen Z, and we talk about mental health and young leadership. And uh, well, here's an excerpt. Kids say, I, you know, I have to take the final eight because I'm going to Vegas for my birthday. I'm like, <laughs> oh, really? Well, we've got okay. 300 other people in this class, and I can't give, you know, 200 makeup exams. So, you know, that's not really a valid excuse, dude. And as a college professor, you're not just teaching college students, you're teaching future workers. And the reality is, you know, they are going to have to be prepared for that world. And too often, I think, as parents, we're not preparing them for that world. As teachers, we're not. And I think that that can be that can be a problem when they end up in, in the workplace, you know, with some of these attitudes and lack of experience that is not going to serve them well. I think it's a huge challenge for this generation and for leaders. Okay, subscribers, you know that that comes automatically to you if you subscribe. So if you haven't done that yet and you're new to the podcast, please, please do so. Also coming up, we have Pete Scazzaro about soul care, something I'm really committed to talking about. Kendra Adachi, Chris McChesney, Four Disciplines of Execution. What a powerful conversation. Amy Porterfield, Horst Schultze, Scott O'Neill, CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers, and so much more. And starting right around the corner, we've got an Ask Me Anything About Productivity. So uh, if you are interested in me coaching you, head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast and let me know what your time management, energy management, time at work, time at home, whatever it is about your life. Ask me anything about productivity. You can record your message. We will start that coaching ASAP on this podcast. And let's talk now about why we keep seeing so much moral failure and abuse of power, et cetera, in the church. Uh, I'm going to share just some thoughts with you. Uh, the episode today is brought to you by World Vision. Do care for your soul. You can get their free series, Right Side Up Soul Care with Danielle Strickland at worldvision.org slash carry. And you know that one of the real predictors of success is who are you doing life with? If you're an executive pastor, check out the XP Summit cohorts with CDF Capital by going to cdfcapital.cohorts. That's cdf.capital slash cohorts. And they'll be able to help you there. So I am not, by the way, in this section talking about what happened at Willow Creek. That's not it at all. There have been so many failures, but what I'm trying to figure out is why did they happen? And how can I prevent that from happening to me? How can you prevent that from happening to you? How can you prevent that from happening in your church? And I just want to share a few thoughts. So uh, these are drawn from an article that's been cited many, many times, and I've shared it before. It's called uh, Some Thoughts on Why Mega Church Pastors Keep Failing. You can see a written version of that over on my website over at kerryneuhoff.com. 
And again, this is not an, an explanation of any particular situation, but I'm thinking, okay, how, do, how does this actually happen? And just so you know, uh, earlier this year, I hired a performance coach slash counselor to try to figure out how I can finish well. Like, you know, how, how do we do this? How do I do the next 25 or 30 years and do it well with integrity and honesty and humility? And like, how do we stay out of those traps, right? And what I would say is, uh, you know, we're all broken. We all make mistakes, but there is a line you just shouldn't cross as a leader when it comes to an abuse of power or certainly sexual, uh, you know, in, in indiscretions or improprieties. There's just lines you should not cross. So why do people keep crossing them? One thought is simply this. You can easily create a world, particularly when things grow, where nobody challenges you. And I've seen this happen again and again. It's not just surrounding yourself with yes people. You can create a culture of fear. You can create a culture of intimidation. You can create a culture where basically nobody gets to speak the truth into your life. Now, listen, I, I get it. As a leader, I don't like critics either, okay? I do not enjoy criticism, but it's really important to have around you people who will tell you the truth, people who will help you see what you don't see. But if you're a senior leader, you can often create a situation where everybody just says the things that you want them to say to you. And uh, that can be really, really challenging. You'll be tempted to tune people out who have different views on your board, on your team. Don't keep them close. You'll be tempted to tune out friends who say, Carrie, are you seeing this right? Hey, was that appropriate? Was that inappropriate? Don't tune them out. Keep them close. Encourage their feedback. Encourage their critiques. To help you win, your friends have to call out your sin, and so does your team. And that doesn't mean everybody gets to do it, okay? You should have some people around you who are uh, you know, able to speak the truth into your life, and that gets hard, and you have to cultivate it. So when you hear something you don't like, what do you say as a leader? I'll tell you this. You say this. You say, thank you. Thank you. And then you pray about it. You take it in. And as much as it hurts, you try to listen and say, is there a grain of truth in this? Okay, second thought. Sometimes the platform gets bigger than your character can handle. Your platform outgrew your character. Leading something large is not inherently bad. It's just not. But I never thought I'd be leading something the size of what I'm leading today. And what happens is your character has to keep up or outgrow your platform. And too often, your platform will outgrow your character. Uh, so you got to remember a few things. Number one, your platform isn't yours. It's God. It's not your church. It's not your organization. It's his. You don't have a ministry, but God does. And your life isn't your own. So are you allowing God to loosen your grip on your life? So I try to remind myself of those things. And then I work really, really hard on character development. And I remind myself my platform is not a pedestal. Uh, pedestals are about ego and adulation. Platforms are designed to be shared and used for the benefit of others. And hopefully this platform is helping you. Third thing, and this is really interesting. There was a book um, by Stephen Mansfield a few years ago who shared 10 signs a leader is heading toward a leadership crash. Number one sign, the leader stayed too long. And that's sort of the the final thought I want to leave with you today is leaders can stay too long. Now, how long is too long? I don't know. Some leaders stay 40 years and they do a great job. Others stay a little bit too long, like they're there for five years and they've just overstayed their welcome. And I think you start to get some signs that perhaps you're spending too long in a role. Your passion isn't the same. Uh, you get bored. You're under-challenged. You start to feel entitled to things. 
And, you know, when, when that happens, it's a real challenge. We have uh, members of parliament in Canada and uh, a guy I knew won a seat in the uh, national legislature. And so he invited me to fly up to Ottawa with him. And I flew up and we walked up Parliament Hill, just like I've walked up on Capitol Hill in the past in the United States. And I remember one of his aides had been there for a while. And he said, you know, it's still a privilege to walk through this door every day. And that was into the national parliament. And he said, when it stops being a privilege, I need to quit. And I think that's true. If you start to really sense that you're entitled to leadership, to the spoils of leadership, um, you've stayed too long. And Mansfield makes the argument that when you do that, you end up in trouble. You end up in trouble. So uh, that's why I kind of left as lead pastor of our church six years ago when things were at their peak. And I felt really good about serving because I didn't want to stay too long. Because if you do, somewhere along the way, you can end up losing your soul. And uh, man, I'll tell you, you don't want to do that. You really don't want to do that. You want to nurture your soul. You want it to be more alive 20 years from now than it is today. And uh, that leads me to the final thought, which is just live in a way that the people closest to you become the most grateful for you. I want my wife to have the best opinion of me. I mean, I haven't met most of my listeners. If you think I'm awesome and my wife hates me, how is that a win? Or if my kids won't talk to me or if my staff are just tired of me yelling at them, uh, which I don't do generally as a rule, all right? But if, you know, how sometimes you can just let loose on the people close to you. And I've done that in the past. And it's like, no, nah, that's not good. That's an abuse of power. It's an abuse of the role. And so I want to live in a way in these next few decades where the people closest to me who know me the best become the people who have the best experience of me. And what does it matter that someone in California thinks you're awesome if uh, the people who know you well don't? So anyway, those are just a few thoughts. I hope that's helpful. I hope this episode as a whole has been helpful. Again, if you've been the victim of an abuse of power or sexual improprieties, I am so, so sorry. And please know that we are praying for you. Uh, we're with you. And uh, I hope, and this is one of the reasons I do this, that we see a better day in leadership. And that's true in business. It's true in the church. And I hope that we move into a new era of leadership. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.